Welcome to the Weird Works Podcast. I'm Dr. Christy, your host. Join us for conversations about alternative and sometimes controversial healthcare topics. This podcast will provide the evidence that you need in order to make informed decisions about your health, to empower you with the facts that you need to advocate for your health, and to encourage you that there is hope your body heals. Join us from experts from all things weird, as well as the testimonies of people with stories of radical healing who were once told that perhaps their condition was a death sentence, that they would just need to live with it, or that drugs and invasive surgery were the only answer. Let's get into agreement that if there is something natural and non-invasive that could be helpful, that it could be your first option rather than your last resort. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Christy here today on the Weird Works Podcast, and I am joined with Dr. Michael Wongier. He is a chiropractor and a functional neurologist, and I'm going to let him explain that. But the reason why I had him on the podcast today is because, like a lot of healers and people that are really passionate about alternative type fields, I find that a lot of a lot of us have had our own personal story, and so I think his story is one of radical healing. And then, of course, a little weird and blue mixed in. So why don't you just kind of tell us, what do you do? What is functional neurology? I always joke with people when I say functional neurology is we just get to play with people's brains. Um, but I'm a chiropractor first, and I went to chiropractic school. And, you know, uh, chiropractic is functional neurology in a little bit of a way. But if you think about it, what it really comes down to it, your brain has three jobs. And you have to perceive the world around you. So you've got all these receptors, like in your eyes, and uh, you've got touch receptors in your fingers, and you've even got receptors in your gut and things like that to process foods and things in different ways. And you have to take all that information in, so perceive your environment. You've got to process all of that information. And then after you process that and you understand things, you form a reaction to it. So if you have a disease process or anything starting to break down, you can have a breakdown in any one of those parts of your brain and your nervous system. And what functional neurology does is it's a lens with which we can view where the breakdown is. Is it in a perception or how you're feeling the world? Is it a breakdown in how you're processing all that information? Or is it a breakdown in movements or how you're reacting to your environment? And then what we can do is through the science of uh, neuroplasticity, which is kind of a big word, but uh, basically just means the brain's ability to rewire itself. Through uh, different therapies and different very specific exercises, we can rewire the brain to make a change in those functions. So we often say we take someone that has lost function and we can restore them back to either their previous level of function or sometimes even a little bit better. So the, the short version of that is we can rewire the brain to improve health and function. So that's pretty cool because I feel like that contradicts what a lot of patients come in understanding about the nerves. Aren't a lot of people traditionally told that the nervous system doesn't heal? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people get diagnoses, and especially like when they come to us, we usually see people... You know, I know you get the same thing. Yeah. People walk in with their grocery bag of medical records, and the doctor said, this is as good as I get. So. Is there anything you can do? Um, and you know, traditionally, we thought that nerves didn't heal at all. And then we just said, well, peripheral nerves are the nerves that run to your muscles and your skin heal, but the central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord, that one doesn't. Right. Until people that couldn't walk were able to walk again. Uh, and now we kind of understand that the brain does heal to a certain extent, but what's really, really cool about it is 
the brain doesn't even have to heal, like regrow the same pathway. Your brain can be rewired to take over function. So, for instance, we have uh, we've worked with a lot of traumatic brain injury patients, and we had a kid who had a stroke on the left side of his brain. And the left side of the brain is, especially the front part where his stroke was, is where speech comes from. It's also where your fine motor comes from to be able to move your hands. Uh, that area was damaged. And to be honest, it was damaged beyond repair. But with neuroplasticity or the understanding that your brain can be rewired, other parts of your brain can actually pick that function up. So like in his case, we were able to reteach him how to use fine motor and reteach him how to speak again just simply by activating that area, other areas of the brain to take over that function. That's what's so important for people to hear is these incredible stories of healing, and that's really a big reason for the podcast because once you start to understand neurology and anatomy and these different scientific fields, it becomes a lot more hopeful for people who are having some kind of chronic illness or have been given a diagnosis or told perhaps that this is as good as it's ever going to get. So why don't you kind of tell us how you learned about the field because he has his own incredible story. Well, so uh, it can be a long story or a short story. Mm -hmm. I'll try to keep it uh, fairly brief. When I was in high school, I was injured playing football and um, I was going to catch a pass and I got hit on one shoulder by one player and another shoulder by the other player and kind of twisted down to the ground. And over the course of a couple days, I had inflammation kind of set up in my spine and the game was on a Thursday night. I woke up Saturday morning and I couldn't feel or move anything from about the nipple line down. Uh, and it freaked me out, obviously, yeah. as a 15-year-old kid. Uh -huh. And uh, they ended up, you know, again, long story short, ended up in one hospital. I, and actually the hospital I had been to the night before, because I had some difficulty breathing, they diagnosed me with a pulled muscle and an out-of-place rib, sent me home with a muscle relaxer and a pain med and said, you know, you'll, you'll be fine in the morning, and clearly I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up there about eight hours. They ran all sorts of tests, couldn't figure anything out, and I lived in a small town. So they sent me an hour north to a bigger hospital, and they did more testing and, and determined it was a spinal cord lesion. And originally they diagnosed me with a spinal stroke, and after, you know, a whole day of testing, the neurologist kind of walked in my room, and again, I'm 15 years old. I was playing football three days prior to this. Uh, walked in my room, looked at the, the chart that was on the end of my bed, kind of read it really quick, looked up at me and said, you had a spinal infarct, which means you had bleeding in your spine. You'll never walk again. Wow. Set my chart on the end of the bed and walked out. Uh, great bedside manner, yeah. by the way. Uh, Sounds very compassionate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, very cold, very sterile, and just kind of matter of fact. So when they first put me in physical therapy, they stuck me with an intern. She was there getting hours for finishing up her program. And the idea for PT was, we're gonna teach you how to use this wheelchair. The shiny new wheels are your new ride, and we need to make sure you're proficient in it. So they kind of stuck me with an intern, and I think it was the best thing they could have done for me, to be honest, because uh, I told her when, you know, I'll do whatever you need to train me how to use the wheelchair. I get it. I can I can do this pretty easy. Yeah. If I fall over, I'll figure out how to get back in. But we're gonna, I'm walking out of here. And at 15, it was maybe arrogance, maybe ignorance. Right. Uh, and she kind of looked at me a little crazy. But she said, you know, if you can walk three tiles, and they had this walker that was kind of in the corner. Mm -hmm. She said, if you can walk three tiles, and everybody knows those like standard 12-inch yeah. 
white uh, shiny tiles that they have in PT bays or in hospitals in general. Yeah. She said, we'll do a little bit each day to work on your leg strength. So the walker was this little blue hydraulic thing and they rolled it up to my chair underneath my arms and she pumped me up out of the chair and uh, I dragged my feet for three yeah. steps. I think it was a good thing I was playing football three days before. Uh, I dragged my feet for three steps and she's like, okay, you lived up to your end. So she kept working with me a little bit each time on like okay. strengthening and things. And after a couple of weeks, I was like the new toy because my legs started to get stronger. I was able to do things that they said I'd never be able to do, and every physical therapist wanted to work with me. And, and I ended up walking out of the hospital about a month later. Um, and I had deficits. I had a lot of deficits. I couldn't feel really well still from here down. Mm -hmm. I had no pain and temperature perception. I had no pain perception. Uh, one of the, and I use this to explain to people, one of the amazing things about the brain is, even though I didn't have the ability to feel pain, my body still had to know what had happened because pain is just a symptom that something's going on, right? Right, it's like that red flag call to action kind of thing. Yeah, and right. often it's your brain's way of saying, hey, stop what it is you're doing. we got to kind of reevaluate what's going right. on here. So I didn't have the ability through the spinal cord damage uh, that to feel the pain. But if I stubbed my toe, and I learned this at like 2 o'clock in the morning one night, <laughs> like hard. Yeah, I got out of bed and, and I stubbed my toe, and I went to go step on my foot, and I didn't realize I'd kicked anything because I couldn't feel the pain, but I lost control of that leg, yeah. and I fell to the ground. And I went, I'm like, what is going on here? And I got up, and I went to stand on my foot again, and I crumbled to the ground again. And I looked at my toe, and it was bleeding, and I'm like, oh, I kicked something. And so I didn't have the ability to perceive the pain, but my brain had shut the function off so that I literally couldn't keep walking until I assessed what was going on. Yeah, it's a protective mechanism. Yeah, so right. it's kind of cool to see that. And that's neuroplasticity at work, really, in that you know I didn't have the ability to perceive the pain, but my brain still knows that that was an important signal to pay attention to. So, And, and that's a, one way that your brain protects you that can be used in the same way to help heal you. Um, so I kind of I went through life for a year of not being able to perceive pain or cold or hot for temperature. And one day I went to the chiropractor. My brother kind of talked me into going to this guy. That's how it usually happens, right? Yeah. He's like, <laughs> I got adjusted and I feel great. Maybe he'll help you. And I just had back pain from having, you know, the muscle issues and all physical therapy. Right. And, uh, you know, being told your spine was bleeding and you were never going to walk again, I was a little bit apprehensive about getting yeah, cracked. Yeah, cracked. Yeah, back then, that's what you thought, right? Great. I want to be back in the hospital. Hopefully they saved my bed kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, but I went there, and he was an old-school Cairo, the kind of guy that kind of picks you up and rattles you out. Yeah, Basically just cracked Yeah, cracked everything. Not super specific, but it was actually turned out being super effective. I went to him, and he adjusted everything. Like I'm pretty sure my ears were adjusted, <laughs> my teeth, he cracked those a couple times. Um, and I went home, and I was running a shower, and I put my foot in to see, you know, to kind of step in and I was like oh crap that's too hot and I reflexively pulled my foot out of the shower and then it kind of hit me all at once I'm like wait a minute that was too hot and you I felt it yeah I dipped my toe in there again and pulled it back out it was like a new toy I was like I can feel temperature again that's pretty cool and so I went to him the next day and I was like doc I don't know what you did but you yeah. know, can you and he honestly he had no idea he's like yeah the power that made the body heals the body and you're healing from the inside out and that's 15 years old 16 at this point it went completely over my head. Right. Um, but when I got to chiropractic school, 
uh, we, they teach you this kind of bone on a nerve thing. Mm -hmm. And and I heard the original chiropractic story about a guy who had his hearing restored, mm -hmm. and then my story, and I'm putting the pieces together, and I was like, wait a minute, so did he like move all the bones off all the nerves, and what nerve is it that runs from the neck to the ear and does anything with hearing? And it just didn't make sense to me. Uh, so I started studying neurology and kind of realizing how we can make changes in the brain to restore function and hearing. For me, it was cold and hot and pain. And uh, for other people, it's hearing. For other people, it's different things. So uh, I, I say I took the blue pill, so yeah. to speak, and went all the way down the rabbit hole and yeah. to the neurology side of things. So did you always have that inquisitive type of mind? Because it sounds like at 15 years old, like a lot of people would have just taken what the doctor told them at that point as gospel you know, and never questioned it and, you know, maybe did some PT and got mildly better or, you know, somewhat improvement so they could live their lives, but, like, you took it to the next degree. So was that just something in your determination? Is that just how your brain is wired? Like, what do you think it was? I think so. Um, I'll always just kind of ask the next question, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody tells me something, okay, then why? I was that annoying kid. Yeah. Hey, Dad, why is the sky blue? Well, because it's blue, but why? You know, yeah. I was always kind of asking that. I was scientific in a way and yeah. trying to discover things. Um, but, you know, I don't ever take anyone's word as gospel. I think mm -hmm. I, I want to find out, well, I got to fact check them, right? In, right? in today's world of fake news, um, mm -hmm. I fact, fact check everything if somebody tells me something. So, so yeah, I think it's important to always ask and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I finally, when I got into chiropractic, I understood, you know, this doc walked in and he was very cold, delivered the diagnosis and that I was just supposed to accept yeah, that. Right. And I don't, I think healthcare today is more of a team, like I'm part of your team, I'm mm -hmm. going to give you what my thoughts and opinions are. Okay. And I think that's a piece of the puzzle for you and then there's other pieces of the puzzle that can get added in there and, and can do some things with people. Right. So. I like that. It's true because there's plenty of research actually that shows that the people who get the best outcomes are the ones who usually combine traditional and alternative medicine. Like, and so you know, a lot of people think like, "Oh, you're just way over here on this side of things," and it's not really true. Like, there's a right time and place for both. Just we do happen to believe that oftentimes the most extreme invasive is all too often the first call to action instead of the last resort. So you kind of feel the same way. Yeah, you know, I always tell my mm -hmm. friends, if I'm bleeding profusely, don't take me to a car. <laughs> take me to the emergency room. Like, at that point, right. I'm good going to the hospital. Um, and they do what they do. They do really well. Emergency medicine kind of mm -hmm. stuff is, is really good. But, you know, when you look at the drugs and, and the things that are created for a lot of what I refer to as chronic conditions, right. let's say blood pressure, for instance, most blood pressure meds, especially the beta blockers, mm -hmm. they were, when they were created, it was intended to be on them for six months to a year right. while you made the necessary health changes in your life to then get off of the drugs. They were You were never meant to be, even the drug companies, never meant for you to be on beta blockers for the rest of your life or even after 12 months. So, you know, again, there's interventional, and I think sometimes, you know, a drug or a chemical is necessary to get you through something, but then it's about lifestyle change and it's about owning your health and taking those things back over. And, and I think that's where we kind of got lost in the shuffle is that people got that and they were like, okay, that's the easy button. Mm -hmm. I'll just take that forever. But the drug is really just getting rid of the symptom while your system kind of erodes underneath it. And they're not really willing to sometimes do those other things. Right. And so that's, 
And that kind of leads me to the next question is, what is the difference between the chiropractic functional neurology and traditional neurology? And is it really just about that, like, continuing to ask the question why and get more to the root cause? Yeah, so I always kind of explain it uh, is the difference between pathology and physiology. Right. And, you know, medical doctors are really good at looking for a pathology, meaning you know, they're really good at looking at an MRI scan and saying, is something growing here that shouldn't be growing? Is something bleeding that shouldn't be? Is something missing that should be there? Where they don't do a real good job is looking at disorders of physiology. You know, for instance, concussion gets a lot of play out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had a kid come to us one time, he was a 16-year-old boy, and he had actually been cleared to play football because he didn't have headaches anymore and he didn't have dizziness and all the symptoms went away. Yet, he was failing at school. He went from being an A and B student to getting C's and D's. He had scholarships originally to play football, and they started pulling scholarships because of grades. And mom brought him in, not because of symptoms, right? He didn't have headaches. He didn't have any of those things. Mom brought him in because he was a jerk. That's literally what it said. Wow. <laughs> uh, he's not my kid anymore. He's rude to his brothers and sister. Uh, he's failing out of school. And so when we looked at him, we measured his eyes, and we look a lot at the eyes. Uh, but we look at him differently. So he was able to look left and he was able to look right, but when you watched him do it, instead of smoothly moving back and forth, it kind of looked like you were watching his eyes through a strobe light. And they were jumping like from target to target, even though the target was moving nice and slow. And we showed mom, I'm like, does that look normal to you? And she very quickly was like, no. Like, so he can look left, left, he can look right, but it's how well he does that. And that's where functional neurology and really where I think healthcare, the more vitalistic or more holistic healthcare in general, looks at the function of you. Not is it pathological, is something you know missing or, or growing where it shouldn't be, but how well does your body function on a day-to-day -day basis and how well can it get through certain tasks? Because that's really, if you can catch it there, that's when you can make the most change and the yeah. biggest changes. When they've got a tumor, it's, you know, that's grown and taking up you know, a whole part of their body cavity, it's harder to make changes at that point. If you can catch it before the tumor gets to that point or before it even starts to grow, we can make a lot bigger changes. That makes sense because I think anybody in, you know, like holistic, chiropractic, alternative type therapies, that is the model, right? Be proactive, preventative thinking, get in there sooner than later when you have choices, right? When yeah. something it's more likely early on that something natural and non-invasive is going to work for you, right? Yeah. I have a patient put it really well to me one time. Mm -hmm. um, he said, you know, I spent most of my younger days ignoring my health in search of money. And right. he basically ran himself into the ground. And he said, and now I'm spending all of my money trying to regain my health and get a couple more years with my grandkids and my family. So you pay for it on one end or the other, right? True. And it's if you set yourself up well in the beginning, you can enjoy that those later years and that time with your yeah. grandkids like he was trying to search for um, and, and in a much better way rather than fighting off cancer or fighting off all of these other conditions that might pop up as a result. I like the way he said he put that because I've said that to patients. Like, it's harder to realize that when you're not, you know, you're going through life and you're being able to do what you can, your body will adapt for high levels of stress for a really long period of time until suddenly it won't. And like you think, you know, you don't think of that you're living your entire working life, 
you know, to spend the rest of your retirement years bouncing from doctor to doctor, but all too often that is the scene. And by the time people come to us, that's not what they worked so hard their whole entire life for. So it does really take a shift, like a paradigm shift in your thinking. Like you need to take care of it now or you're going to deal with the ramifications later. It's going to take longer and it's definitely going to cost you a lot more money in the long run. There's research on those numbers as well. So then who should see you? Like we talked about stroke, we talked about concussion. Does somebody necessarily have to have had an injury or have a diagnosis of some kind of chronic illness to benefit from what you do? Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, you know, a lot of chronic illnesses can benefit, but we always joke and say anybody with a brain needs to see us. True. Right? I'm now, a patient, so <laughs> you can think whatever you think about my function, but you know, it's necessary. Well, and you, we only get one. They haven't figured out how to do a brain transplant yet, uh, and I'm sure they're working on it in some AI lab somewhere. Right. But you know, we only get one brain, and we got to really kind of pay attention to it. And you know, with our life, we're we're living longer. Well, until this recent uh, understanding, we this is the first generation that won't outlive their parents actually, but we're living longer. So you see more of a breakdown in brain health and brain function as we age. And you know, we get the question a lot is, well, I'm just getting old, that's why my memory is going. Aging, the normal process of aging doesn't include memory loss. And, and you, know, you look at people like super agers, which is a, a population that they can study where we can actually measure function because they don't have a lot of these breakdowns because they haven't been exposed to a lot of things that you know, the toxins that maybe we have in America, and there's certain pockets in the area or in the country and in the world. Uh, if you look it up, it's called blue zones, mm -hmm. where people don't seem to age on the same rate that we do in other parts of the world, or in most parts of the world, I should say. And so they measure those people, or they study those people. So memory loss isn't a, a normal part of aging. So if you're starting to forget names or forget things like that or trouble coming up with words, get it now before it becomes pathology or become becomes degenerative to the part. You know, we do a, a neurofit class where exercise is awesome and exercise is phenomenal for the brain and there's a, you know, a stack of books that prove it and a stack of research articles that prove it. But I like to exercise not so much for my waistline but for my brain. And oftentimes it doesn't include much different, you know, like with our exercise programs we will do the same stuff you'd see at a CrossFit gym sometimes, or we might have go for a run. But we also add a cognitive component to it. So, you know, while you're doing squats and, and lunges and burpees, I might have you, every time I clap, you got to do five jumping jacks. Or if I hold up a red card, you got to do squats. And if it's a black card, you got to do push-ups. So you have to think through some of the exercises. So we can add very easily some brain exercise to regular exercise and focus it in a little bit more. Because I think it's important, you know, sometimes, and you see this more than I do, sometimes people will eat for their waistline or not eat for their waistline, and they'll eat like low-fat foods or sugar-free things, and sometimes that might be okay for your waistline and it might get you to lose weight, but it's not the best thing for your health. Um, so, you know, when we look at it, we want to eat for our brains, not our waistlines. And your waistline will take care of itself if you're eating things that are good for your brain. Uh, so we want to focus more on, on kind of better choices and, and growing in that way. Yeah, I'm, all, I'm for all of that, but what I just heard you say in my crazy brain and the way my brain works is that I can multitask. I could be doing two things at once. I could exercise my muscles and my brain at the same time. That's awesome. I'm going to do that. 
yeah, we got the same time, right? <laughs> yeah. True multitasking doesn't actually happen, but we can do, well, we can add layers to things to make it better. Yeah, you're trying to teach me that. But, and I've heard <laughs> that. You don't multitask, you multi-fail. Yep. So you're in agreement with that. That's a great way to say it. Okay, that's yeah. a real thing. Yeah, I thought I was a really incredible person because I was always, like, prided myself in the fact, like, I could run circles around most people. I could probably accomplish, like, ten times the average person could by the end of the day. My husband would, like, testify to that as well. But then I started studying, you know, like meditation and, you know, this um, mindfulness. And I was like, maybe I'm driving myself bonkers. Like, maybe this isn't ideal. And so what he's saying is true. Yeah, the old phrases like stop and smell the roses mm -hmm. or, you know, take some me time. All of those things are, are very important for brain. Right. Brain and we're going to talk about stress in a minute. But, you know, what I think he's going to prove to us is that when you are in a state of fight or flight or stress, it really is impossible for your brain to repair. And so most people probably never go into that repair phase for yeah. the majority of their day or week or month, right? Yeah, you think people are suffering with insomnia more than ever and mm -hmm. lots of things, and that's really when the repair happens. If your brain is so wound up on what did I forget to do today or what do I have to do tomorrow, right. it's really hard to get into that repair phase. Yeah, it makes sense. So is there kind of a list of conditions or people like maybe deficits that they could identify that they might search for somebody in their area or if they're injected, they'll come and see you locally? Yeah, so traumatic brain injury is the biggest mm -hmm. one that we do really, really well with. Uh, stroke rehabilitation is another really big one too because, you know, a lot of times people just kind of get left with that. Mm -hmm. You know, the old science of traumatic brain injury is sit in a dark room for 10 days and what they've actually shown and and this was in 2016. Every four years, guidelines come out for concussion. Uh, 2020 has been delayed a little bit because of 2020. Because. Um, yeah, just because. Uh, but in 2016, they actually reversed the thought of if you have a traumatic brain injury, sit in a dark room for 10 days, that's the best thing. They actually said that's bad for your brain, it's detrimental. What you really want to do is what we call sub-threshold exercises to rehab the brain during that time frame. But a lot, of, a lot of doctors don't know that, so a lot of them still get this, go sit in a dark room. Stroke is another one. You know, unfortunately, medical hospitals are a business, and they're very busy and they need beds. So, uh, especially with physical therapy, they have these parameters, and once you need a certain level of function, they kind of just move you through, right? And yeah. that level of function isn't necessarily where you were before you had the stroke. So what we really want to see is an improved function uh, and, and continue to grow. So stroke, traumatic brain injury, another really big one that we've been seeing a lot of lately too is kids with developmental delays and specifically kids that have dyslexia. And I say dyslexia because there's a misdiagnosis that's happening in the literature starting to pale it out in that um, they're diagnosing these kids with dyslexia, but it's not true dyslexia. It's what we refer to as a convergence insufficiency, meaning their eyes have trouble converging on a target or coming together to look at a word. Mm -hmm. So if the right eye doesn't move as well as the left eye, the right eye might see one part of a word or the second word, and the left eye might see the first word. And so these kids are flipping words and flipping letters. Mm -hmm. And it goes with poor posture. When you're, If your kid has like a head tilt or poor posture or rolling shoulders, and is also struggling to learn to read or feels like, you know, they're really having trouble with math, you know, you can do a real quick test at home and just have them follow your thumb 
in as you come to their nose, and a lot of times you'll see why I just kind of quit or dive out, and that's not dyslexia. Uh, that's a convergence insufficiency, and it's something through chiropractic adjustments as well as functional mm -hmm. neurology we can really work to improve that. And you know, we just had a little girl this morning. We saw her two weeks ago, and Dad's a doctor, so we sent them home with a bunch of home exercises, and she came in today, and she was. You know, she had one eye, like a lazy eye, right? And it just kind of quit and was all the way into the middle. And when she came in today, she looked me dead in the eye with both eyes, and uh, it was a huge improvement. And they were, you know, they were, in, you know, happy with it as well. So you know, she's not all the way there. One eye still quitting, and we got a lot of work to do on her. But after two weeks of just doing some exercises, she's not falling. She's doing a lot better with a lot of things. So we see a lot of kids like that, unfortunately. The less kids are out playing and running and jumping, they're not driving those areas of their brain and their nervous system anymore. So, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot more learning disabilities popping up, or you know, I, and I, you see this side of it more than I do. They're eating fake foods, so there's a lot more yeah. chemical sensitivities on that end of things too. Oh, yeah. Well, and like you said, they're not up and running and jumping and playing. So is that the whole, like, they're on their phones and video games and, you know, on their devices more than we were as kids. Our parents threw us outside and they were, like, come home with dinners ready, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Get home before the street lights. That was the only rule, right? Yeah. So, so this is affecting their neurology and their development. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's been some pretty cool stuff. Um, so I've been to the office, like I mentioned, I'm a patient, and so when you go, like, I'm just going to set the stage, and then I'm going to let Dr. Mike tell you what a typical day is like in his office, but, like, you go in, and there's, like, flashing lights, and there's big screens, you get to, like, play video games while you're in there, and there's vibration plates that you stand on, and he might be throwing balls at you, and making you right backwards, and there's a tongue stimulator, so some wild blue stuff. So we got to get into the weird works part because that is the name of the podcast here. So what is a typical day like? Is that kind of a normal thing? It is. Yeah, <laughs> we try to make it fun. Right? Neuro <laughs> rehab doesn't have to be. I know neuro kind of gets thrown into the category of nerdy or hard or, or things like that, yeah. but neuro rehab doesn't have to be boring. So we try to make it fun. We play a lot of catch in our office. Uh, you mentioned the tongue stand, and, and I always tell people I'm going to shock your tongue yeah. when you come in, and yeah. everybody thinks I'm kidding until I thumb stick their tongue out. <laughs> uh, but the reason that we do it is, you, know, you, you kind of alluded to the fight or flight and rest and digest. Yeah. When you're under stress, uh, we turn on a part of the nervous system called your fight or flight or sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And the other side of that is the gas or the break to that. Right? The sympathetic is the gas, and then the break is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest, digest, and rebuild. Well, when you, in our society right now, we're kind of go, go, go all the time. Healthy body, healthy nervous system, healthy physiology is actually 80% parasympathetic, rest, digest, rebuild, and 20% sympathetic. We've kind of flipped that in our society. We definitely have gone more into this. So the tongue stim actually forces you into that parasympathetic nervous system. So when we put stimulation into the tongue, we, we put a pulse ox on people, and a pulse ox will tell us your oxygen saturation and your heart rate. Mm -hmm. And it's fun. I'll put the pulse ox on somebody, and then we'll shock their tongue, and you'll see their heart rate drop 5 to 10 points sometimes. Yeah. And that shows us that we're activating that parasympathetic nervous system. So we usually start with a chiropractic adjustment to kind of clear the system so that your brain is talking to your body. And then we start with tongue stem. 
uh, to activate the parasympathetic nervous system so that you can rebuild and regenerate. Mm -hmm. And the other reason that we do that is when you're in stress or you're in fight or flight, two things happen with your blood supply and it, that make it hard to work on your, on your body and your brain. One is you take blood from your gut and you send it out to your arms and your legs. Mm -hmm. And that's why people under chronic stress have a lot of gut dysfunction or a lot of leaky gut you'll hear or they have a lot of stomach issues um, and they can't digest their food as well. Well, the opposite actually happens in the brain. And you drive blood from the outer part, which is what makes us more human, and you drive it inside to what we call the limbic brain, or what's known as lower parts of the brain. And that's responsible for more fear and survival and stress, right? So you literally take blood away from the part that allows you to connect to others and the rest of the world, and you drive it to the area where we're in fear or we're trying to just be safe. So we activate the tongue to start because that, that puts you into that rest and digest, which allows us to pull blood and resources and activation into those higher centers. And then we just go have fun. We literally play games. That's what he says. You get out of the treatment room, he's like, okay, let's go have fun. And then you go into the little like game center treatment facility. And it's all, yeah, it's, it's all movement games. Yeah. So movement is life, right? So the more you move, the better your brain. And we move you in a very specific way. So it looks like a lot of fun. We might just be playing catch with somebody. But when we're playing catch, all the throws might go up and to the left and down and to the right because it'll activate a certain area of your neuraxis to drive into one side of your brain versus the other to help us kind of fix the balance in your brain and, right. and rewire it. So yeah. So you talked about the eye tracking a bunch. And I just want to, you said something pretty cool to me very early on when I was a patient. And you said, because everybody I think knows, we do muscle testing in the office. That's like our main way of getting access to the inside of the body, for the body to communicate to us that what's going on when you can't see it in traditional diagnostic imaging or x-rays or blood work. And so he said one day that his, the, our eyes, or the eyes of pupils, you'll explain it better than me, is really his version of the muscle test. Yeah. So what did you mean by that, and why the eyes? Well, so I love muscle testing mm -hmm. um, because it's a way for us to talk to the body. And, and the muscle test, when it goes weak, tells us about one area of the brain that coordinates things that might not be coordinating well, and that's our window in, right? Yeah. Well, we, I use, like to use the eyes, and we watch the pupils a lot. Uh, if you shine a light in someone's eye, the pupil should constrict. When you take the light away, the pupil gets bigger. When you're in fight or flight, or that sympathetic nervous system, your pupil gets bigger so you can take in all the light to take in everything to run away from the tiger, so to speak. Right. Um, so when we're doing things, I use the eyes as the muscle test, it's the one cranial nerve, or it's the only part of your central nervous system mm -hmm. that you can actually see. Everything else, your brain and your spinal cord, you don't actually get to look at. Uh, if you are looking at it, the person's probably not healthy. Um, right. Or they're on a table and, and wide open. Something's right? cut so, open, right. Yeah. So um, the eyes are our way to look directly at the central nervous system. We hear the eyes of the window to the soul, right? That's right. kind of the old saying. Well, they're also that picture, that direct picture of your central nervous system. So it gives me instant access to kind of where we're at on that level of where your energy level is in the brain and where how your function is going in the central nervous system. So it kind of gives you a baseline and then you can track somebody's like progress or response to treatment yeah. by looking at it before and after. Yeah, so another interesting story. We had a little guy in yesterday and uh, he's having a lot of mood issues, a lot of kind of acting out and very kind of, uh, angry a lot and 
very impulsive, lack of control, right? Um, we see that a lot in kids when they don't develop well, and even in adults. One of the biggest signs of Alzheimer's is when your frontal lobe starts to break down, which is the hallmark of Alzheimer's, is that they start to get more angry, right? They lash out to their loved ones, and they're just not cool yeah. to be around anymore. Um, so with him, what we saw as a lack of control is his pupils got huge, and you could barely see the color of his eyes. So when, and then when you shine a light in him, the pupil wouldn't constrict. Wow. So he didn't have that same ability. So we did some therapies with him, and we did some convergence exercises, actually, where I had him following some targets as they were coming near him, and we played catch. And, and then we looked at his eyes later, and he was actually sitting in calm instead of running all over the office like a madman. And um, I brought Mama over, and I'm like, look, see, you can tell his eyes are brown again. They're not black. And he was actually sitting in chill. So uh, it's a way to kind of tell of that function of where the brain is. If the pupils are really big, you know, you want to stay away. Guys, if you're watching, or girls, if you go home and your wife's right pupil is really blown out, don't start an argument. You will lose because that part of the brain isn't functioning well. The part of the brain that will have a logical conversation and, and understand your side of the story isn't functioning. It's not uh, on. Yeah, so if the right pupil's big, just go in the garage, take care of something, whatever you need to do. But don't have the argument at that Oh, point. or girls, if you want to win an argument, go to the mirror <laughs> and see if your right people's big, and then you can go into it. That. Yeah, get you'll into it. Formulating the yeah, argument. Yeah, all sorts of traps. <laughs> okay, so you, you've talked about a, about a bunch of different stories, um, which I thought were all amazing, especially with the kids, because what we've taught parents over and over again is children aren't trying to be misbehaved, you know, and... Oftentimes, what's sad to me is when the kids get started on the world of pharmaceuticals right away, and so you know, parent, you know, teachers are going to be sending letters home with these type of children with their behavioral stuff and not being able to focus or sit still or concentrate or maybe just jerks like that one parent had described her child. But there's a reason behind it, and it's correctable, you know. And otherwise, these people don't end up coming into offices like mine or Dr. Mike's until maybe they're in their 30s or sometimes even 40s when they're just have exhausted what the pharmaceuticals can do. They're tired of the side effects. You know, they just don't feel like themselves anymore. People, the biggest complaint I get on those meds is they lose their personality because they're like too like muted down. Um, and so we have the chance to reverse these children early so they don't become a consumer of the pharmaceutical world for the rest of their life. Right. Yeah. Yeah, pretty absolutely. helpful. But I wanted to give you an, um, an opportunity. What's like your best case? What's the example of radical healing meaning somebody who was given that death sentence or diagnosis, like yourself, you know, um, told that they would never get better, that there wasn't anything maybe other than drugs or surgery or just kind of live with it. Um, what's your favorite story of radical healing that you've seen? There's a couple, but the one that comes to mind uh, was the one just most recently. Uh, there was a little girl that came to us, and it's just a, it was a heart-wrenching story, and yeah. and just kind of killed me at the beginning, and I was I was actually really mad at the way that she was handled. Yeah. Um, but she was eight years old, or is eight years old, and she was, when she was a baby, uh, she was born to some parents that had drug abuse issues, and mom, you know, talking to the grandparents, um, when she was first born, they brought the baby into the hospital, and, and mom, they said, you know, mom, do you want to hold her? She's like, no, I'll give her to her dad. 
like right away, this kid never had connection. Uh, mom left when she was six months old. Dad had her, but dad had his own demons with drug abuse and things like that, and uh, didn't ever take care of her. You know, she would cry um, until grand grandma and grandpa would just kind of randomly show up at the house and help. And when she was three years old, finally, uh, dad left too, and grandma and grandpa ended up adopting her. And you know, without that interaction, babies don't get touch or love or those kind of things. She, her nervous system never really developed. And she's eight and just unruly. You want to talk about getting notes? This girl is way past getting notes sent home. They were kicking her out of school. They actually put her in a special school by the time we'd gotten to her, where she was in with all of these kids that, you know, had really, really bad dysfunctions and were, you know, beating up their siblings and trying to burn houses down and, and things like that. And it wasn't a good situation. So when she came to us, the other option was, they were going to put her in foster care for six months with a behavioral therapist, which to me, the thought that that was even a thought blows my mind. I'm like, you're going to take this kid who didn't get love and hugs. Right. She's finally connected to the grandparents who she knows as mom and dad. Right. And she's getting that love, and you're going to take that away now? You're going to destroy this kid's brain. Right. Um, so they wanted to take her out of the house for six months to a year and do hardcore behavioral therapy. Uh, when they came down to us, we said, hey, listen, our, our approach is going to be totally different. We want you to put your hands on her. We want to exercise the part of the brain that controls it. You know, when you talk about kids don't want to be bad, when you ask this little girl, you know, when you act out, when you do these things that you're getting sent home from school for, do you feel bad? And you saw her face change. Like, she absolutely felt bad. She right. I don't want to do it. I just can't help it. And, you know, we started to work on that front part of the brain again. That's where the control comes from. That's part of what makes us human. Um, but, you know, this girl, when she she was having these acting out, but the other biggest thing is she had she went to sleep in her own bed, uh, and it came out during the week of care that she was having nightmares of what dad would do to her when she was younger. And I didn't ask or want to know what that was. Um, but, you know, she always slept with her grandparents, and she had for five years. So grandma and grandpa or mom and dad had never gotten to you know have their marriage either because she was in bed with them all the time. So you know the goals were simple for her. We wanted her to be able to make it through a school day and we wanted her to sleep on her own. Right. And by exercising that front part of the brain, we can work on the control of emotions and outbursts and those impulsivities. And we also work on that independence and wanting to be part of society and, and connect to others. And you know, we did a lot of work with her. We saw her only for a week, but we saw her 15 times in that week, you know, three times a day for five days. And uh, she went back home, and I talked to Grandma, Grandpa, Mom, and Dad a week later, two weeks later, and she, since she had been at our place, she hadn't gotten any marks on her letters to get sent home. And she, they bought her a tent for her bed, and she had slept in her bed almost every night since she left our That's office. So, awesome. so she, again, they wanted to put her on all these you know, brain-blunting drugs and just shut her nervous system down. And they wanted to take her out of the home, the family that she knew, and basically retrain her. Uh, you know, we did that with our dogs. We sent them away for two weeks to a yeah, training and exactly. they came back and they would sit. But yeah. I don't know if it's the best thing to do to a human being. So right. um, she was probably right now is, and again, it's because it's the most recent, one of my favorite stories, just because it was so heart-wrenching to hear at eight years old, everything she had been through. Right. Um, but at eight years old, how much she still had now to look forward to. 
you think of like a life of like no hope, right? Like if she had just gone down that road, like what kind of future did she really, what kind of opportunities did she really have, you know, have? Even if she did get on pharmaceuticals, like career, you know, pursuing any kind of like higher purpose or ability to give back to community or have a family of her own, like that's pretty devastating. Yeah, those blood, those drugs, they blunt everything, mm -hmm. especially creativity. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you lose that when you give these kids and you change that neurochemistry that early, you turn them into little robots, right? Mm -hmm. They will do a task just fine and they'll stay on and they'll focus, yeah. but they lose the creative part of their brain. And that's what I hate about the ADHD drugs is they turn that creativity off. And these parents, in an effort to get a kid to sit down in the classroom, which the brain was never really meant to do, yeah. you take away their ability to be creative and kind of you know, their imagination and to get away from that with kids. And that scares me a little bit about where we're going with that stuff. Well, if they're losing their creativity and they're just numb so that they'll behave and be little robots and they're kind of controllable and easier to deal with in, you know, a traditional school setting, which is some of the motivation behind that, you know, if they're not being able to be able to create and be playful and use imagination, then doesn't that throw all of neuroplasticity right out the window? Yeah, it makes it a lot harder to rewire things, especially yeah. when you know they kind of wire them into one side of their brain. It's really hard to then get them into that other side to be creative and fun and enjoy life. So the traditional medical model is creating long-term neurological deficits. I would agree with that statement. <laughs> I'm making a statement. <laughs> yeah, we kind of well, and we do. But if you look at everything in society, it's you know you don't go to school to and I'm not bashing teachers or anything like that, but the school systems, they're overrun. So what school teaches you is how to be a student and how to get a nine-to-five job. Mm -hmm. It doesn't teach you creativity. If you look at some of the foremost thinkers, and I'm not saying drop out of school and, and go be a hippie or anything like that, please. But if you look at some of our foremost thinkers, they didn't go through the traditional school all the way through because right. they, they had that creativity. You know, uh, If you want to go way back in time, Leonardo da Vinci, mm -hmm. uh, he failed out of all school. He was thought to be, you know, dumb and, and ignorant, and he's probably one of the greatest thinkers in history. Uh, Einstein, kind of the same yeah. thing, struggled with some basic things, but wrote the theory of relativity because he was able to expand his mind and do yeah. those things. So, you know, if your kid is a little weird, that's a little good or a lot good because you don't want them to necessarily fit in the box all the time. I get it; they got to make it through school, but there's. A, What's really cool right now is in schools, they're, they're doing these 504, 501Es or EPs or whatever. Um, you can have a trampoline in the back and let your kid bounce. You can have a ball for them to sit on instead of a chair. You can let them get up and walk around and experience the environment instead of being stuck in a desk staring at a screen. So they're, they're willing to make those changes for you instead of drugging or medicating kids. Yeah, I love that. Well, and I think we're going to see a difference now with like the homeschool model because kids can sit on a ball or bounce around or get up or hit pause and move around and that kind of thing too. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So I know this is more our field with the nutrition side of things, but is there anything specific that you tell people that they should eat for optimal brain health? Well, so when we get people, a lot of times we see them interventionally. Um, but we, we remove the big things. Now, there's a lot of diets out there, and, and that space is, can be very confusing. And, you know, there's keto, there's paleo, there's mm -hmm. all of those types of things, and there's vegan, and there's this. I had uh, our teacher, our anatomy teacher in Cairo school was a vet, and his, his thing was pretty simple. 
Uh, he said, if you look at an animal's mouth, you can tell what it should eat. We have canines, but we only have four of them. Right. So when you look at a percentage, that's about 10 to 15 percent. So maybe 10 to 15 percent of our food should come from meat, mm -hmm. and the rest should come from plants and things like that. Um, so we kind of stick to that model. But I also, there's three things that, especially in a brain injury or in a stroke patient, I just kind of blanketly remove. Uh, we remove gluten, dairy, and soy. And the reason being is they're just inflammatory. Gluten's not really gluten anymore. Again, you know this. You are way down, way further with this than I do. Gluten's not gluten. We were never meant to drink another animal's milk. And soy has been basically uh, overproduced so much that it's not really what the original plant was it's either. It's so processed and genetically modified. Yeah, and it's proestrogenic, so mm -hmm. you know you can throw hormone patterns off in males and females. And so we just we kind of ignore or eliminate those to start. Yeah. Uh, and eliminate the inflammation. And we try to get people to eat a well-rounded diet. For general health, I really like the MIND diet. Again, eating for your brain, mm -hmm. not for um, your your waistline, so to speak. And it's, you know, the MIND diet is a modified version of um, Mediterranean diet. So okay. just with a little bit more healthy fats. But you know, if people have other issues, like a lot of gut dysfunction, we usually send them to somebody who can handle that a little more specifically. Yeah. Okay, well that's helpful. We talked about stress, but I had a, uh, I had a curveball question for you. It wasn't on the list of questions I sent him. Is it possible to get on somebody's last nerve? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's possible because people have gotten trampled all over my last nerve. <laughs> Is there any neural? Yeah. <laughs> Smash it. Yeah, do the twist all over it. Um, it's possible. Yeah, so again, when we, when we drive all that blood and resources into the fear centers of the brain or those those limbic areas, mm -hmm. you lose the ability to want to connect to society. Okay. So, and that's really what that last nerve is, is when mm -hmm. you just are like done with people, right? Yeah. Or you're done with that certain person. Um, you, you just kind of want to retreat away from everybody. That's that last nerve thing. And that's because we've become so limbic or so wound up into fear or anxiety that you just don't want to hear it anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's happening a lot with people, you know, we get a lot of people in the office that have been stuck inside with some person for mm -hmm. so long. You know, if you look at domestic abuse, unfortunately, um, divorce rates, all of those things are, are skyrocketing with all of this, you know, isolation. Yeah. Yeah, with the quarantine, for sure. We have a tool called heart rate variability. I think you guys use something like that in your office as well. And on average during this time, even if people were doing self-care, eating right, staying on program, taking supplements and doing seemingly all the right things, our measurement showed that everybody on average like a five to 10 year addition of stress in their body. So like if you're 30, you would be experiencing the stress of a 40 year old or if you're 50, the experience of a 60 year old. So. You know, taking 10 years longevity off your life because of what we all just went through as a culture in 2020 is pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. That might be why I asked that question. <laughs> okay, here's another fun one. This probably could be a weekend seminar at least, but is there really a neurological difference between men and women? Are we really wired that differently? <laughs> we are, and it's, you know, it's funny. There's a couple... Uh, things on that. There's a guy named Mark Gumbler who does men's brains, women's brains, uh -huh. and he's a, he's a pastor. Dr. Hall, mm -hmm. one of my mentors, turned me on to him, um, and he talks about how men's brains and women's brains are wired a little bit differently. But we also do, uh, and it is a weekend seminar, it's, it's called He Said, She Said, mm 
and it talks about the differences in brains and body. You know, a female doesn't get the same exam that a male does in our office. There's differences. Uh, you guys bleed once a month, so you're anemic until proven otherwise. So mm -hmm. we have to rule things like anemia out and, and the effect that that has on brain health. The other thing is, and the University of Stanford actually did the research on this, there is differences in the male brain and the female brain. Sorry guys, but the female brain is bigger than the male brain is, but it doesn't mean it's smarter. Oh, it doesn't mean I was already drawing that next conclusion. Yeah, it's, it's bigger, but it, um, <laughs> the, the connections, the interesting part, the really interesting thing that came out of the University of Stanford study was that um, you've got two hemispheres or two sides to your brain. And females have more neurons connecting the two hemispheres than males do. And if you look at Gumbauer's stuff, he talks about how men are really good at doing one thing seemingly for hours without interruption, and, and women just can't do that. Right? Women are looking at the men like, hello, are you done with that? Can we move on? Yep, yeah, right? like, hurry up, let's move to the next thing. Hello. But women, <laughs> women have a lot better connectivity from hemisphere to hemisphere. So when you talk to a guy, we're really good at speaking in data or one thing, and we can get really dry and, and drawn out in that way. Um, and men are typically, they do a lot better with being by themselves and isolating, right? Guys are really good at going to the garage and tinkering with something. Females, it's more healthy for you guys to go for a walk and, and gab, right? Dr. Hall always says this muscle needs to move as much as these muscles do in females because you guys have to be able to talk it out. Guys have to maybe go by themselves and think about it. But it's because of that connectivity from hemisphere to hemisphere, you guys use both sides of your brain. You need that interaction uh, to be able to talk it out and do that. So, yes, there is a difference. And it makes a difference in how we get to help, too, mm -hmm. and in our stress-relieving things. It is the worst thing to put a woman by herself. You know, and meditation can be good, and don't get me wrong, you know, mindfulness practices are good, but men can do that more more often and more efficiently than the female brain can, where the female needs to go talk and, and kind of have it out, solve the world's problems, if you will. Right, that makes sense. And with that, like, um, more connection between right and left brain, doesn't that also bring in, like, emotions tied to words and, you know, the creative side and the, like, realistic, logical side? Yeah, very good. Yeah, it brings in the, you know, girls speaking with more inflection and more emotion. So prosody or rhythm to our talk comes from the right side of our brain and and uh, the data part kind of comes from the left. So that's why women will talk with a lot more emotion and they're talking to a guy that's just hearing the words, right? So that's the, you know, when we talk, we're giving you all the logic and all the facts and you're taking it in and trying to figure out what it means emotionally because you're using both sides of your brain, mm -hmm. which is why sometimes that communication between the male brain and the female brain, when that right pupil is really big, guys, remember, um, <laughs> is not happening because you know you guys want to tie emotion to what we're logically saying and then you turn around and say emotional things back to us and we're still in that logic part right. going well where did where did that come from they're like you're so dramatic right but we're like this connected to that connected to that 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 like we had 25 thoughts before we like spit out what our re response and words was to you right yep yeah and Gungor goes into that <laughs> it's, you know Everything's connected to everything. Uh -huh. You know, your wife is connected to your job, and your job is connected to your mother, and your yeah. mother's connected to the kids. And, yeah. and, and in a guy, that just doesn't happen. We're like, right. kids have their box, and job has this box, and we right. don't cross off all that love. Well. 
And I heard it explained, and I like this a lot, like men are like waffles, so all the little compartments, and you take one box off of the filing cabinet at a time, like off of the shelf, and then you open that box, and you deal with what's in that box, and you have to like close it and put it back on the shelf before you go to the next box and open that, while women's like spaghetti, like what we just talked about, like everything's so intertangled and interconnected, and men are like, how did you go from there to there that quick, you know? And yeah. the guys sitting there going, wow. how did we get here? I just wanted to know what you wanted to hear. Um, yeah, because it spirals. Everything's connected to everything. I think we're going to save some marriages with this explanation. It is important, and it's really interesting to understand because you can't just force somebody to be like somebody else because neurologically we're very differently wired. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So all we can do is try to understand. Okay, so I got ask this question a lot and I'm always like this is impossible to answer. Some people have asked me like if there was just one thing that people could do to improve their health with nutrition what would it be? And then you're kind of like one thing real? So my answer was sugar. We yeah. all could do better by eliminating sugar across the board or all things that break down into sugar. So what is the one thing that people can do to improve their neurology? Well, so we talked already about movement, and I think movement is huge for the brain, and we absolutely need to do it. But, again, I'm going to kind of bring it back to that blue zones and the highest concentration of 100-year-olds on the planet. And the one thing that they noticed that was different uh, in those areas was social connectivity. So the one thing that I would say is, is be a part of your community. Go out and talk to people. And I know right now with what we're dealing with, it's hard to do that. But as soon as this is over, we need to get out and have the one-on-one -on -one interactions. It's not the same on a computer screen. Uh, it's a 2D experience versus a 4D experience. So we are, our brains, different than other animals, we're wired to be communal. And what they noticed in the blue zones is that where people are healthier longer, they had better social connections. They still got together for Sunday dinners. They still, you know, knew their neighbors. You know, a lot of places in America, you might look at somebody that lives next door to you and you don't even recognize them, you don't even know them, right? You might not say hi to your neighbors. I have, you know, I live in a condo and I have neighbors that literally run when they see other people because <laughs> they don't want to have to say hi or have communication, right? So uh, we need to stop that. We need to be more connected. There's some research right now uh, that's come out in the last couple of years on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's again mm -hmm. uh, because they expect Alzheimer's and Parkinson's to cripple our economy by 2050. Because we're living long enough, but now we're living with this degeneration, right. and we don't have a good way to take care of it. You're going to start seeing, or you already are seeing, like adult daycares and things like that. Yeah. Um, but what they noticed was there's actually a magic number if you're over 60 years old of how many friends you need to have uh, to decrease the likelihood that you will have neurodegeneration, and that magic number is five. Uh, if you if people that have, you know, through their adult life, five or more friends they tend to have less neurodegeneration as they age. Now, I always get asked this question, well, does it count? Do Facebook friends count? Because I got like 2,000 friends. <laughs> no, and don't. the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> that actually detracts. For every 1,000 Facebook friends, you need one extra friend. Realized yeah, in-person friends. Yeah, because if you have 2,000 Facebook friends, you're spending too much time on Facebook. Um, but it, I always say it like this. It's five people that you could call at 4 o'clock in the morning to come help you fix a flat tire that would actually show up. Yeah. Uh, and the other that question I always get is family count. And family doesn't either. This is people outside of that family circle growing that sphere. Families just counted as 
they should always show up at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for most families, but for we need to expand that sphere and have other people that we talk to. So five friends as we age that we can have communication with and talks with that we can go, you know, for the female go for that long walk and solve the world's problems. Mm-hmm. For that male, maybe it's go throw some some weights around the gym together or whatever quietly or silently. Uh, and you know that would be the one thing is that social connection. That's cool. I didn't expect you to do that. Yeah. Five is manageable. Hear me as the multitasker. I'm like, can I manage five friends? Five is doable. Five is manageable. Let's see, you said like 25. I'd be like, oh man. Yeah, that would be overwhelming. Yeah. That's acquaintances at that number. Right. That's more like the Facebook friends. Okay. Well, so what's next for you? I know that you have a private practice here in Jacks. I know that you teach as well. And I also know some of the things that are on the horizon for you. But what do you want our listeners to know? Where can they find you? What's what's coming up on on your agenda? Well, we have the office here, and then I also run a clinic in Atlanta mm-hmm. that's affiliated with Life University Neuro Life mm-hmm. Institute there. Um, and then I've started writing books. So I never intended to write books. Uh, my story just kind of, you know, like a lot of people or guys especially, we tend to bury our emotions. And uh, one night at about 4 o'clock in the morning, it clawed its way out of me through tears. And I started writing and uh, got to about 50,000 words and was like, hey, maybe this could help somebody else. So I yeah. uh, wrote a book, Never Accept Your New Normal, uh, about, you know, again, they told me I'd never walk again. And I want people to understand that a diagnosis isn't a death sentence, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. We, it's, it's a thought. It's, a, it's an opinion. And that's why mm-hmm. you can go to another doctor and get a second opinion. Yeah. And that's what I did until I was happy with the opinion that, kind of spoke to me and I was able to leave and walk out of the hospital. So um, there's that book and then there's another one coming uh, called Medical Minimalist, how to decrease our reliance on deadly drugs and, and doctors and, and kind of regain our health that uh, is kind of in the works that I'm writing with my wife who you know who's going to offer on the science side of things and yeah. she's the woo-woo side. Yeah. She's the really, you know, crystals and energy healing and so we're going to write a book together about kind of those two thought processes and those two sides to the story um, about, you know, getting rid of, you know, my grandparents had 17 drugs in a bag. Yeah, my grandma too. That was part of my motivation watching her. I was like, shoot, I'm not even that. Yeah, and so yeah. I don't, I take zero and I have patients that are yeah. 56 years old that take zero and that's definitely possible. It is. Uh, and I want to, you know, kind of help guide people to get to that. That's awesome. So when those books are available, we'll definitely add the links in the show notes to make sure that you guys can find them because I think people need more stories like this just to know what's possible. I think in our world, we have a lot higher hopes and higher expectations of what could be as far as your health and just life in general than maybe the traditional model will lead you to believe is capable, you know, that you're capable of. And so that's why we have this podcast. That's why we have amazing guests like Dr. Mike on that want to help you guys just know what your full potential is. So that's it for today. I'm signing off. This is Dr. Christie and Good Health Naturally. Thanks for joining us.